there was no difference to him if it, he was teaching men or women. He, he needed it to be exactly right. And he, in my experience, never talked about women learning. Like he didn't. I've been in a lot of women's Batei Midrash where, and I think probably my colleagues can relate to this here, that, you know, a lot of time is sometimes wasted on, wouldn't it be great if we had more opportunities to learn, you know? And then at some point, someone's like, you know what? This is one of our opportunities. Why don't we actually do it instead of talking about it, right? And Rabbi Khan, there was never that kind of wasting time. It was never that like meta, let's think about what we're doing. It was like, what does Tosot say? What does Rava think? What does Abaye think? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. About a week and a half ago, Rabbi Moshe Kahn passed away at the age of 71. The tributes to him as an ideal teacher, Tamit Chacham and Rebbe, immediately started pouring in across social media. I found it so surprising because, frankly, I had never heard of him before. And yet, as one of my guests says, if a woman wanted to engage in serious Talmud study in New York for the past four decades, Rav Kahn was the address. The obvious love and dedication shown towards him by his students from Stern and Risha made it clear that he was someone whom we all should know more about and continue to learn from after his passing. My close friend, Rabbi Pesach Somer, suggested that I record an episode of this podcast in his memory, and that's what I did. I was fortunate that four close students of Rabbi Khan's, Rabbanit Ann Gordon, Rabbanit Sally Mayer, Dr. Shana Shrelschik, and Rabbanit Rachel Weber Leshaw, were kind enough to join me to talk about his life, his legacy, and what he meant to each of them. We discussed his Derech Halimud, that is, the methodology he utilized when he learned in Tatora, whether he saw himself as a revolutionary in teaching generations of women, why people like me may not have heard of him before, as well as broader topics, such as the future of women's learning, whether there should be a unique methodology in Torah learning for women that's distinct from men's Derech Halimud, and much more. We'll get to the panel discussion in just a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate the Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for the Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team, too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Rabbanit Ann Gordon is the deputy editor of Ops and Blogs at the Times of Israel, co-host of the daily Talking Talmud podcast on Dafyomi, and a co-founder of Chochmat Nashim. She has taught Judaic studies widely and studied in various women's Batei Midrash in the U.S. and Israel. She is a graduate of Drisha Institute's Scholar Circle, holds a B.A. in History and Philosophy and an M.A. in Judaic Studies from Harvard University, and is A.B.D. in her pursuit of a Ph.D. in Jewish Education. 
Rabbanit Rachel Weber Leshaw is a Gemara Ram at Or Torah Stone's Midrash at Lindenbaum and has taught Torah in a variety of learning institutions around the world, including at Pardes and on Web Yeshiva. She is a graduate of Nishmat's Karen Ariel Yuetzet Halacha training program, as well as Yeshiva University's graduate program in advanced Talmudic studies. She lives in Efrat with her husband and three children. Rabbanit Sally Mayer serves as Rosh Midrashah at Or Torah Stone's Midrash at Lindenbaum, where she also teaches Talmud and Halacha. She has worked as an editor for the new Koran translation of the Talmud. Before moving to Israel with her family, Rabbanit Mayer was a member of the core faculty that built Mayanot Yeshiva High School for Girls in Teaneck, New Jersey, where she chaired the Talmud department and directed Israel Guidance. She has served as education director at the Jewish Center on Manhattan's Upper West Side and lectures in communities in the United States and Israel. A Midrashat Lindenbaum alumna, she holds a BA from Stern College, an MA in Medieval Jewish History from Yeshiva University, and completed the Jerisha Institute Scholars Circle Program. She lives in Neve Daniel with her husband and children. Dr. Shana Strauch Schick is a lecturer in Talmud at Barilan University and teaches Talmud and Jewish Law at Jerisha Institute, New York. She has a PhD in Talmud from the Bernard Revel Graduate School, Yeshiva University, and studied in Stern College's GPATS from 2002 to 2007. She is the author of Intention in Talmudic Jurisprudence, Between Thought and Deed, and the upcoming monograph, Women in Rabbinic Law and Narrative, Vying Currents in Babylonian and Palestinian Texts. Rabbanit Ann Gordon, Rabbanit Sally Mayer, Rabbanit Dr. Shana Strout Schick, and Rabbanit Rachel Weber Lesha, thank you very much for joining me on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Thank you for having us. We're going to be speaking about the life and legacy of Rav Moshe Kanzatzal. And at Chadayani Mazkir Hayom, his name is one I had not heard until he passed away. But once he passed away, I heard his name mentioned in the most glowing terms by so many people whom I respect. I just felt it was very important to have a discussion about who he was so that people like me who don't know who he was can learn from his example and learn from the people who learned from him. So I'd like to start off by asking each one of you just to briefly outline who you are, how you came into contact with Rav Moshe Khan. And by the way, there is no relation, even though my last name is Khan. And the follow-up question to that, I'll already ask it now, is how specifically Rav Khan influenced you and your life. So Anne, let's begin with you. When I was studying in Israel for the year between high school and college, I attended a program that did not teach Gemara to women, but I had had Gemara in high school, and I felt the gap. I was missing it. And one of my teachers that year in Israel said, the only place you could learn Gemara seriously in America is Drisha, Drisha Institute in New York, which at that time was a much smaller institute than it came to be later. I took that seriously and I went and I spent the following summer between Shana Aleph and college in New York. I spent my time on my grandparents in Brooklyn and took the subway into Manhattan. And Rabbi Khan taught the Gemara Shir and a Halacha Shir in the later part of the afternoon. And I would say that it was everything I wanted it to be. Uh, the gap that I had had during, I learned a lot during my year in Israel, but that gap that was not covered was very much the entrance into that world of Gemara learning in a, and I had a serious and wonderful Gemara learning in high school. This was something else. And it was exactly what I wanted. And it was Rabbi Khan. And he was personable and he made himself available so that then once I was in college and I had a few halacha questions and I wanted to continue my own studies and so on, he was a point of contact and uh, a resource for me to turn to, to continue the learning. So I guess that was where it began. Then later I came back to the scholar circle and saw him every day for three years, but 
there is then there's a lot of like different points of interlude where I encountered Rabbi Khan as a teacher. I went to Stern College for one semester in the middle of my college experience so that I could take his Gemara class. I mean, I took other courses as well, but that was really the impetus. Okay, thank you, Anne. Sally, how about you? I learned from Rabbi Khan for years, um, both at Drisha Institute as well. That was where I first encountered him. Also it, in the summer program, um, I believe it was between high school and, and Shana Aleph that I first uh, learned with him. Um, I went to Midrash Aladim, and when I came back, I went to Stern College, and I had I took Rabbi Khan's advanced Gemara share there. And then after Stern, I went to Drisha to the Scholar's Circle, and I had Rabbi Khan again as well. For So between Gemara and Halacha, I learned a, a tremendous amount from him. He was a, a really, really important uh, teacher for me and role model and mentor. When I got engaged, I my husband brought me to his Rebbe, Rabbi Rosenzweig, and I brought my fiance to, you know, to my Rebbe, Rabbi Khan. And I remember we spent the Shabbos with his family because like that was, you know, so really a very, very important and meaningful um, person, mentor in my life. Okay, thank you. Shana, how about you? So I had gone to a uh, high school where Gimar was not part of the curriculum in New Jersey. And, and I spent two years in Israel where there was Gemara, but and it was more of in the course of other uh, class. It was something I just felt a real lacking in my life. And so when I went to Stern, I uh, was in Rabbi Khan's Gemara Shir, my, um, my years in Stern. And that's where I had started to learn on my own, but it was where I was really taught how to learn Gemara. And then uh, after I was in Stern College, I did GPATS. I was very fortunate to, it's a two-year program, but I was there for five years and almost all of my five years, uh, except for one year where I had Rabbi Nid Sally's uh, husband for uh, Aram, uh, Rabbi Khan was my Rebbe. And um, I'm also a very close friend with his uh, daughter. And so I've been in uh, touch with him throughout all these years. And he was someone I, even when I, I only left GPADS because we had to leave New York and move to Detroit and he still gave me the Mikoro that he was uh, teaching. There was no Zoom back then. For a few years, I was able to keep learning with his year and ask him a lot of questions and stay in a touch until um, really, you know, right before he passed away. Uh, when he was extremely sick in November, when he was no longer able to teach, I had the great uh, privilege and uh, uh, devastating uh, news to uh take over his uh, GPAT shear for him when he was no longer able to teach. And um, so, uh, Could you just, I'm sorry, just for our listeners, explain what GPATS is, just sorry, in a yeah. sentence so or two? GPATS is, was, is Stern Colleges. It stands for the Graduate Program in Advanced Talmudic Studies. My first two years was just called the program. <laughs> but uh, it was a Gemara program in the beginning. The morning is a few hours of Gemara uh, Ian, and then the afternoon is Halacha. And it is, it's a two-year program, technically. All right, thank you very much. Rachel, let's hear your connection to Rav Khan. Sure. So one thing that's actually really important to me to say is Rabbi Khan really was my Rebbe before I ever met him, and that I actually was really lucky. I represent, I think, 
I'm the youngest woman on the panel by a number of years. Um, and so I grew up learning from Rabbi Khan's students. My Gemara teachers in high school were students of Rabbi Khan, which meant that his methodology um, was the methodology that I grew up learning Gemara in. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but his insistence on understanding and translating every word of the text, um, really deep um, fealty to just what does the Gemara say. Um, that's how I started to learn. And I thought everybody learned that way. Um, and it turns out that they don't. But then when I came to um, when I came to Stern College after having spent two years in Israel, having learned Gemara intensely for two years, I discovered that I was like brought back down to earth by the intensity of Rabbi Khan's shear and his expectations for us. Um, and so I took his shear for two years and then um, I continued on in GPATS. I didn't take his shear every year in GPATS. I, um, but I really, Rabbi Khan's presence in the Stern Beit Midrash um, was so much a part of my formative years of just developing a love for Torah and a connection to just the ability to sit and open a Gemara. Um, and really, I owe all of that to him starting from ninth grade all the way through graduate studies. I appreciate hearing from all of you talking about your personal experience. Before we move further, Sally, could you give a brief biographical sketch of who Rabbi Khan was so that we have some context in which to put the rest of our discussion into? Sure. Um, so Rabbi Khan went to Yeshiva College. He graduated in 1972. Uh, he got smicha from uh, Ritz, from Yeshiva University's uh, rabbinical uh, seminary in 1975. And he also studied in the Yadin Yadin Kolel and got Yadin Yadin smicha in 1979. He was a Talmud of Rav Salavechik, uh, and he was also a very close student of Rabbi Yerucham Gorelik, uh, who was Rosh Hashiva at Ritz for, uh, for 40 years. He taught at JSS and the Initiative Universities uh, in, in uh, uptown at the Men's uh, Institution. And in 1983, he began teaching Gemara and Halacha at Stern College and uh, continued uh, until, until he absolutely couldn't anymore. He taught uh, even after being diagnosed with lung cancer. He taught over Zoom for, uh, for a long period of time and really insisted on maintaining his teaching um, until he just couldn't anymore. He's been teaching in GPATS and the program that uh, the Chana was describing um, since it started. Um, I think it was like 2000 or 2001. And um, he also taught at Risha Institute for 30 years. And that began in 1980. He was really like he was the person that you learned from if you were a woman in New York learning Gemara on a high level after high school. He was it, right? In a, in, in a, in a, at least in an Orthodox setting, he was a Drisha. He was at Yeshiva University. So, like, there, where else were we going to learn? He also, in his later years, uh, became a licensed psychoanalyst and psychotherapist, um, and had a private practice that he maintained until until he was uh, too unwell to to continue. He told me when I, I visited him uh, in November, it was a great zechut to sit with him and his wife, and uh, he was already had already deteriorated to some extent and couldn't teach anymore. I sat with him for a while and he, he mentioned to me that the psychoanalysis, that learning um, to be a therapist really helped him relate better to his students. He felt that he could understand them better um, and that was really important to him. I felt that he understood us back then before he was uh, a psychotherapist, but, he, but that was something he mentioned to me that was meaningful to him. Someone actually told me, maybe you can confirm that this is true, that he studied for 12 years to be a psychotherapist, taking one course a semester for 12 consecutive years, which if that's true, that shows a tremendous level of dedication to something. Yeah, I read that he, that it took, you know, they said it was over a decade. So it makes sense what you're saying. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. 
Rav Khan has been described, as you just explained, Sally, as a one-man revolution in women's Talmud study and women's Torah study. I'm curious how he ended up with that role. He was teaching at Stern. He also taught at Drisha. The number of people I have heard about who have been strongly influenced the same way the four of you just described. It's been unbelievable, unique, I would almost say. So does anybody know, can you explain why he took on that role, how that exactly happened? How did that become his career focus? I think he was willing to. Well, that's an important point. Yeah. I mean, he does. There was a story he told fairly often where he asked the Rav, is it okay? And Rav Salichik said, why not? That's something he would say a lot. Why not? So, and I I really think, you know, just the fact that he stayed in Stern for 40 years, I do think many other people would have treated teaching women Gemara in Stern as a stepping stone or as, as a side gig, um, something, a stepping stone to great, to a greater things. But the fact that he stayed for 40 years, it really um, showed his uh, dedication and he's teaching Torah to people. Also, I know that he was personally close with Rabbi David Silber, who was the founder of Drisha. So when there was an opportunity for Rabbi Silber to offer Rabbi Khan to come teach, it was a logical, natural, I'm not going to say partnership, but certainly, you know, collegial, uh, professional move. And he continued there for many, many years as well. Rachel, did you want to add something? Yeah, just to what Shana said, 100% Rabbi Khan did what he did because people wanted to learn, so he taught them. But in a conversation with someone this week, actually a man who sort of asked like, oh, what, you know, what can we as men learn from Rabbi Khan? I said, one of the things is that actually he taught even when people didn't really want to learn that much. He taught his college class when one person was registered for it, when two women were registered for it. It's not like there were every year 25 women begging to learn advanced Gemara at Stern College. Some years there really wasn't, and he never once said, this isn't worth my time. He showed up every single day to teach. And I think like, if we're saying, you know, any any sort of statement, part of what he said about women's learning is actually like, I think this is worth it, whether or not you guys realize how powerful this is. It is still worth it to make sure that there is always an advanced Talmud Shear at Stern College. And if he hadn't done that, every single semester, we would have had to fight to make sure it was on the schedule. But he said, this is my class and I'm going to teach it for 40 years. And really, because of him, I think it will remain on the schedule no matter how many people register for the course. And, And that is the change. That's the revolution. Let me ask a follow-up question. My question almost assumed this, but perhaps I was wrong in asking that. Did he see teaching women as a specific mission? I was assuming that he did, given that he taught in both Stern and Drisha. It sounds like that was a specific thing for him. Or was his attitude more, I teach Torah to people. I teach Torah to Jews, and I don't think about their gender. What was his attitude largely? In other words, when we talk about a revolution, we often think about somebody who's at the barricade saying, I think this is important. Or did he see it as self-evident on some level? I don't know if that's really an answerable question. It's actually really interesting because he he definitely taught us Torah as people. He didn't teach us Torah as women. I didn't feel the rigor was unparalleled. Like he never dumbed anything down. He never, he never, it didn't matter if you were, you know, how much background you had or whatever it was. He, he demanded in a gentle, kind way, but demanded precision, would wait for it, would correct, uh, you know, and he was, so first of all, his standards were very high, which, you know, 
person who believes in women's education specifically could also have very high standards. But I'm just saying he was like, there was no difference to him if it, he was teaching men or women. He, he needed it to be exactly right. And he, in my experience, never talked about women learning. Like he didn't. I've been in a lot of women's Bate Midrash where, and I think probably my colleagues can relate to this here, that um, that like you know, a lot of time is sometimes wasted on, wouldn't it be great if we had more opportunities to learn, you know? And then at some point, someone's like, you know what, this is one of our opportunities. Why don't we actually do it instead of talking about it, right? And, you know, um, and Rabbi Khan, there was never that kind of wasting time. It was never that like meta, let's think about what we're doing. It was like, what does Tosot say? What does Rava think? What does Abaye think? Like really in Yanni, like really to the point, um, I actually just listen to some, um, there's this beautiful WhatsApp group of hundreds of Talmidot of Rabbi Khan that it started as a Tehillim group for him. And then it became this sharing of memories uh, in the past uh, week and a half. And and somebody shared some videos of a recent time when they said he almost never would go off topic. He wouldn't like ever take tangents, but he, the students wanted to talk to him about women learning. Um, and it was a recent Zoom. And he expressed what he thought about it, which was the first time I think I had heard him actually talk about that, like at length, which is interesting, having been his student in these places and also a long, like a long time ago when it was newer, right? So he said, I don't know, he's like, I think anyone who wants depth should learn Gemara. It, it, if people challenge you, say, I'm into depth. I I want, I want to get it. Why not? Do you think it's us, sir? If you think it's mutter, then I don't know. Then why not? Why why does it bother you if I'm doing this? You know, does it bother you? Because it doesn't bother me. You know, um, I actually think this, like I, I mentioned this in my husband for him. I think he, because of that, he was the perfect Rebbe for us as women who were like, this whole thing was new and, you know, people sometimes challenged and said, what are your motivations and this and that. And he was like, straight as an arrow, let's learn, let's do this properly. We're Ovde Hashem. This is what we're going to do. Um, and without all that, there was no, like, you didn't feel like you had an agenda. Rabbi J.J. Schachter said at the funeral, he said, Rabbi Khan had an agenda. It was women's learning. And it's it's true. But he didn't feel like that. Like, it wasn't on the table. It was it was very, very clearly behind the scenes. That's my my experience. So at Drisha Institute, the population is a little bit more diverse than at Stern College, both in terms of age and in terms of background, in terms of desire for what you want from women's roles in religious society. I don't know, at least at the time that I studied there in the scholar circle, Sally, I came just after you for the scholar circle. And I think the population shifted between your time there and my time there. And there was a good amount of angst in one direction or another in the Beit Midrash. And in particular about women's roles, which went kind of outside of the Beit Midrash. And it did kind of percolate in the room, around the room. Rabbi Khan was certainly aware of this going on. And I remember feeling, I don't know, a certain measure of discomfort myself because I wasn't pushing and wasn't interested in pushing for more, I don't know, greater activity towards the, the same kinds of active roles that other people in my cohort were interested in. And I had this conversation with Rabbi Khan, not in the class, just me. And, you know, he was, he would always come before class and sit in the classroom preparing. So I came a few minutes before class and spoke to him about it. And he said, you're learning, keep your head down and learn. And I felt like that was 
really on target. The idea that you can still be aware of everything else going on, but don't let it sidetrack you. You know, pay attention to the to the Torah that's on your daf or in your halacha shiurim or whatever it is, and keep going with the sources and the. I want to say the he didn't say this, but I'll say the politics kind of fall into place over time anyway, and we just really mostly just focused on learning. Every so often, somebody would raise some kind of sidebar topic and would be vociferating about whatever injustice they felt to be there. It's not that he didn't know what was going on. He could answer them well, but his approach was very much, you know, take your books, learn your sources. I know that Anne said it sort of as a a figure of speech, but this idea of Rabbi Khan saying, like, keep your head down and just just learn um, is such a great description of what he actually was like in real life. We used to joke he would sit in the (laughs) with a huge Gemara open. He always learned from really big Gemaras, none, none of these like little shots. It's like always a big Gemara and like two or three other Gemaras for, you know, looking things up. And if you had a question during Seder, so you would stand next to his table and wait for him to look up. He never looked up. You could stand there for 10 minutes and he would not notice that you were standing there. So he had to like cough or like whisper, like, excuse me, Rabbi Khan, like, is it okay if we ask we didn't understand? And he would look up and he would be thrilled to answer whatever the question was. But like the best, there's this image going around that's just been shared so many times of Rabbi Khan learning. And every single student has had that view of standing next to Rabbi Khan, watching him learn. And even more than that, he didn't write he didn't, I mean, he wrote occasionally, but he didn't publish books. He didn't write Chidushim. He didn't go on speaking tours. This was a man who just loved to learn and teach Torah. And I think like when we talk about was there an agenda, was there not? Rabbi Khan was aware of things. He was a brilliant man. He knew what people said and what was going on, but he just loved to learn and teach Torah. And we we got so lucky that he ended up, you know, falling into, into the world of women's Torah learning because he could have done this anywhere. I think it was mostly an accident and he stayed and we're so lucky. Just on that point about him writing a very long time ago, there was an educational journal called Tain Dat. I don't know if anybody remembers it. This was a time when it was like the size of a regular magazine. It didn't even look like a journal. And there was one issue that was dedicated to the question of women in Talmud Torah. And Rabbi Khan has an article in there. So this goes back to what? I don't know, the late 80s, the early 90s. I have it in my house. I should have brought it now to the recording. But he was aware that he was teaching women. It's not that he wasn't. He knew that this was not something that everybody found acceptable. But he never made anybody in the room feel other. Mm -hmm. I can just add something to that. Because um, I think he really much just lived truth and did what he felt was right. And he did write, he did write some things and he didn't just write about women's learning a Torah. And he was very sympathetic when, you know, if learning a sugya that could be uh, troubling to specifically from a gendered point of view. I mean, yes, he's looking down and learning, but he was very much just had a lot of compassion for people and women too, but not in a condescending way, as just a human way. And he very much stood up for what he saw as injustices. He wasn't just someone whose head was in the books all the time. I actually want to go back now to something that Rachel referenced, and you've all sort of referenced this as well, but specifically Rachel talked about his derech halimud, about wanting to get precision in translation, making sure you understand every single word, as opposed to if I can extrapolate, 
just the larger themes without worrying about the specific words on the page. I have to say, I've been reading that a lot and I actually read it in your Facebook post as well, Rachel. And it has spoken to me only because as someone who used to teach in yeshiva myself, I'm not comparing myself except for my last name, trust me, but that was always what I insisted on as well, precision in translation. In fact, the way I understand Iyun is actually just understanding the precision in translation, letting that be the source of the depth in terms of learning and let it all go from there, whether you're learning a Gemara, Tosfot, any of the other Rishonim. So maybe perhaps, Shana, we can start with you since you took over his shiur, Jipats. Can you tell us a little bit about his Derech Halimud? So uh, first, understanding every single word that is there in the text, in the Gemara, in Rashi, in the Rishonim. And any time a Rishon quotes another source, you have to look it up. And not just that one line. You have to look it up from the beginning of the sugi. You have to look up the Mishnah, the whole sugi, and be able to explain what is that Gemara about? Why then is Tosfos bringing that Gemara? You know, and how does it uh, function within the Tosfos within Rashi? But the way he would do it, he would ask these just such good uh, questions. Like, it wasn't just, what does it say? I mean, he would say, okay, tell me what the Kimara says, meaning, you know, that Tosfosot quotes. But it would be, he'd be able to just get to the heart of uh, something through a question that could really probe whether someone truly understood it and the concept behind it and then could apply it even. Then let me ask a further question about his reliance upon Achronim, the later authorities, was he very much on the page and sticking with the text, or did he often go into other issues that were implied by the text, going off of the text, and also dealing with other matters such as brisker hakiras and the like? I was once in the yeshiva where we studied Baba Batra, and for it was a six months man because there, was, there were two others that year, and. Over the course of six months, we went from Daf Kafchet to Daf Laman Aleph Aleph. And that worked for some people. It didn't actually work for me. And some people loved that because we barely did anything on the page. We were going all over the place. Lots of, lots of Achronim. Was that what Rav Khan was? I'm guessing it was not. But Rachel, what was your experience with him in terms of that? Um, so a couple of people referenced that one of Rabbi Khan's favorite, um, favorite Rishonim to look at was the Milchamo Sashem by, of the Ramban um, and his... his debates, fights with the Ravid, with the Balamor, um, and, and those Rishonim specifically. Um, so it was not a lot of Ahronim. Um, and in terms of the Brisker Chakiraz, I'm sure that if I went back, I would discover that he referenced them without referencing them. But he wasn't interested in, you know, how does this Gemara fit into a larger framework? It was, how does this Gemara teach us what this Gemara is trying to teach us? And now if, you know, Tosfo brings another one, so they'll, they'll have to talk to each other. And I remember a semester that most of the semester was spent learning a sugya that wasn't our original sugya because it was brought up in Tosfot and it was just so difficult that we spent, I think, a month learning just a, a whole different sugya so that we could plug it back in. Um, it was in Zenehenevezelo Chaser about um, someone renting someone's attic. I, I remember that was the concept. I don't remember exactly the details, but I know that we both went slowly, but not because we were looking for other pieces of information to fit things in, but only because we wanted to understand what was this source trying to tell us about the specific thing, whatever it was um, that we were learning. And so you would come out with this incredibly deep 
and nuanced and and potentially conceptual without using the word conceptual understanding of whatever sugya it was that I learned, you know, I'll never learn a sugya better. And I can go back if I want. I can put on, there's a chafza gavra, there's a this, there's a that. I can do that afterwards, but only because Rabbi Khan taught me how to learn it. When I first encountered those brisker chakiras, I actually had a hard time being that removed from the text of the daf, which at the time I attributed to my graduate studies, which also had been very primary source, text grounded, and I think also very deeply rooted in Rabbi Khan. It happened to be that when I encountered in that same kind of program, we were learning the same parak that I'd already learned some years before with Rabbi Khan. So I was very frustrated. And I went back to my Rabbi Khan notes to make myself feel better. And I discovered in those notes exactly what Rachel has just said, that underneath it all, those conceptual underpinnings were part of the way it was part of the material, but it wasn't the process and it wasn't off the daf in the way that I was finding distressing. And I, it's not fair to say distressing at this point, this far removed, I can appreciate the brisker chakiras also. But at the time when I first encountered them, it was a bit of a challenge to kind of make my peace with a very, very different approach. Just add something else about his Derech Halimud that I think is is also unique uh, to his shear, that was unique to his shear. More than most other teachers that I have encountered, he made you feel like he was figuring it out with you. Um, he would like kind of ask these questions and listen carefully to the students' answers and ask them to read it again. And, and like there was this it was very process focused um, and, and and therefore really, really communicating a methodology. It felt like you were he, he clearly had prepared a tremendous amount, you know, and he, he, knew, he knew what he wanted to say. But whereas some shirim is like the teacher might be asking questions, but the point is to get to like a certain, you know, big idea or big hakira, whatever it is that the teacher's trying to communicate with a Raikan, you, you didn't feel that you you he allowed the the sheer to go where the students to some extent were taking it. Um, part of the outcome of that, at least for me, and I like from what I've read from other people, I think they feel this, many people feel the same, is that he he gave us a lot of confidence. He he kind of he communicated this sense that you can do this, you can figure this out, what you think matters. Um, you know, it's not just I'm presenting you with this package that I've prepared, but like you can't tell how. He would sort of lead you through it and lead us through it and and we would be part of the process. Um, and I think that's part of that that was part of his derech um, as well, even though it doesn't relate to conceptual versus textual but it's it's uh it's part of the derrick i think also first of all that was just so well said and that a process like it's still it's like when you would get something right he would a uh, smile he would look he would look away from you and he'd say he's right and he would smile and, and everyone would be like a part of this but he really and he would say this a lot he had a bottom-up approach that we're working through this together from the text. And it really wasn't this, as uh, Rabbi Nitzelli just said. He has this big idea and he wants to just share with you this big idea that he has that maybe not everyone really gets, but they get enough to see that he knows a lot. It was really working from the text to, you know, get to, yeah, it, it, it actually is some of the big ideas that are in the Acharonim, but it was really from reading it and learning it and analyzing the one other thing that I'll add from Der Halimud that I have always attributed to Rabbi Khan was starting with a biblical text, as opposed to opening a parak and beginning with a Mishnah and going to the Gemara. 
everything that we ever did, whether in halacha or even a gemara shir, was go back and see first what it says. If we're learning Sanhedrin, Hababa Machteret, go see what those verses say that present this case. And then we moved on. You know, it, it wasn't doing iun and parshane uh, mikra, but I have found that to be like a pillar of how to be how to treat any material going forward since then. I find it interesting, and I don't know if I'm off base here, but I've heard from you as well as in reading various tributes, I hear about the various Rishonim that he seemed most interested in. As you said, Rachel, the Muhammad Hashem, I hear Tosfa repeated repeatedly. I haven't heard anyone talk about him going into the Rambam, and the Rambam is a cornerstone of so much learning. Now, I'm just curious, was he very into the Rambam, or is my intuition that maybe he wasn't as into the Rambam as others might be correct? No disrespect intended to the Rambam, but a certain type of brisker style of learning that almost begins and ends with the Rambam has become dominant in many yeshivot. I'm curious if that was not his way, regardless of the brisker chakira issue we talked about. I remember we once did a Rebbe Chaim. <laughs> I remember one time. It could have been more, and, but it was definitely not a mainstay of it. He he did tell me that he would pick a topic. He often would pick a topic based on there being a Balme or an Amachano Sashem Machlok. And he really, really loved that a lot. I'll also just say part of what we spent, what we remember spending our time was, was the difficult texts, meaning briskers can spend, you know, hours analyzing every word of a Rambam. And I I find that really intellectually fun as well. But for Rabbi Khan, if you understood what the Rambam said, so you could move on. The problem was when you read Tosfot, you probably didn't understand every word. And Rabbi Khan wanted you to understand why Tosfot brings a first answer and a second answer. And what's the difference between them? And why is one better? And what's the, you know, the pros and cons? So I'm sure we did the Rambam. We certainly looked at the Rambam in terms of how he paskins halacha on, on a question, but but it was so much more process-oriented, like everybody has said, that it's good to know what the Rambam says, but the limud is not the Rambam. The limud is everybody else. Very interesting, because when I used to teach, I actually used the Rambam as sort of a second Rashi to understand the Pshat of the Gemara. How did the Rambam read the Gemara? But that's a very specific way of learning, and other people don't like that way of learning. It's always interesting to me to find out how other people who are text-based teachers like to use the various Rishonim in different ways. I'd like to move on to a different point that was referenced a few minutes ago, his smile. And what I mean by that is him as an individual. We've been speaking about him primarily as this phenomenal Talmud Chacham and Gemara teacher, this Rebbe. But let's talk about him as a Rebbe, perhaps with a capital R, as an individual, as somebody who is dedicated to his students. Was he somebody who had a relationship with his students outside the classroom? Or was he primarily somebody who, when you're in Shir, he's there for you, he wants you to understand it, and he cares about your understanding what you're learning? But his relationship didn't necessarily extend beyond the four walls of the Beit Midrash. Yeah, he was totally, he cared so much about each student. Like he really, he made himself available. If you wanted to talk to him after class, before class, um, you know, like I said, like, I don't know, I guess he made time to have have me and my my husband over for Shabbos. Like, you know, I think about that as a teacher, like, I don't know, my students don't bring their, their fiancés over for Shabbos, like not much, you know, I don't know. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's actually like, I feel a little bad I intruded on his family in that way, you know, um, but it was, uh, but like, I, I, I guess I felt that, that that was appropriate and that was something that, you know, and he did welcome it. And he really, I th- he cared about us a lot. He, he really, uh, he was, he was so dedicated and so caring and, 
so patient, like even the, even with, he made himself available outside of class and, and, you know, whoever wanted to be in touch with him could be. And, but I think it was even in class that he communicated that, like he was just so kind and so patient, never, it was like such a cool combination of, of, of extremely high standards, but never making you feel bad. You know, that he, he was so patient at the same time, you know, you could have very high standards and be like, you know, you didn't prepare. What's the matter with you? You know, come. He, everyone came prepared because we were terrified of, you know, that we, we wanted the she's right that Shauna mentioned. And, uh, and we wanted the, we didn't want those long pauses while I waited for you to, to you know, to, to formulate properly. Like we wanted to get it right. Um, but he, he didn't, never made us feel bad. He really he cared about us. Like he communicated that, I think, in so many ways. My Chavruta, when I came to the Sheer in Stern, got married at the end of that year and in Silver Spring. And he read the Ketubah at their wedding. This was not somebody who had years and years of relationship with Rabbi Khan. And still, it was important to her that he be there. He was a participant. He traveled for it. This was a long time ago. But, you know, I think I think it's telling of who he was. Yeah, he read had a bracha at my wedding. But one thing I think was really amazing about him in that, yes, we can go to him and I would call him I mean, for over the past uh, 20 something years, um, you know, learning issues, you know, person, you know, just, he was always there, but in the classroom and even in relationships, he was really able to maintain just a very, I don't know, respectful, reverential, safe. I mean, it's, and it's not some, like, I don't know how to say this in a better way. And maybe it's Alan even, but uh, girls never acted as silly around him the way sometimes could occur when it's a male uh, teacher. That never happened. And I've been a girl in school. I've taught in many places. And that's so not a given um, when it's a room full of female students and a male a teacher. It was just such a respectful, safe, if someone has a better word they can add to that. And it's just remarkable how it's because it's so him as a person. And it's just how he had treated people. He really saw as like a Rebbe Sally said before, he saw every person as a person. And that's just something which, you know, no one even feels a need to say it because it's so obvious. And I don't even want to have to say it, but it's it's such a remarkable thing. Maybe dignity? Yeah, is that, I mean, yeah, I don't know what the right word is, but it was just an atmosphere of utmost respect on all sides. Let me move on to another question, which was referenced a moment ago as well. Speaking about the stronger students and the weaker students, those students who have less experience in Gemara, who perhaps were had less ability in learning Talmud, how did he balance the different groups in his shiur? Or was this year only the higher level students? I don't know. How, how did that work in terms of making sure that the top students understood and were enthralled and engaged, but the lower level students weren't left in the dust behind? Was there a way that he was able to balance that? Some of the classes that he taught were halacha. And some of the people who didn't have the Gemara skills took the halacha classes and reacted to Rabbi Khan's death now in the same way that all the people who took his Gemara classes did, meaning I don't know if it's fair to say that they were weaker students, but they were not necessarily dedicated to the pursuit of the text in quite the same way. Um, and I saw 
and heard a great deal of sorrow. And he was the best teacher I ever had. And I followed him to Drisha after I finished Stern. I'm quoting various people. Um, so I, I think that that should be said, that there's a, a population that didn't learn Gemara that still looked to Rabbi Khan as one of their Rabbeim in a very profound way. I think that people who really were weak students wouldn't have wanted to take his class. Right, but there was a range in a Gemara class. Rachel, did you want to add something? Well, I, I was just going to joke that I walked into his sheer thinking like, oh, this is going to be fine. Like I took Gemara in high school. I just came back from two years in Israel. Like I, I was flying. Um, and then I, as I said, fell back down to the ground because nobody really was a high level student in Rabbi Khan's sheer in the sense <laughs> that his demands, his gentle demands were so high that again, you know, to be... 20 years old and taking a vocabulary quiz and like this is you think this is a joke and then you realize like oh no the fact that there's two yuds in that word or a vav at the end like that actually makes a difference and you've been spending years not really paying close attention to that so in some ways I just want to push back on the idea that there was ever anybody who was really strong enough to breeze through Rabbi Khan's class such a thing didn't exist but what he did have was an extraordinary level of patience and a very very unique awareness of when we had been spending too long on something, meaning I've seen, I saw him spend half an hour sitting with a girl over a woman over, you know, one piece of text over and over in however many ways she needs. But once we're in the classroom, once it felt like enough people had understood, so then it was, okay, I'm happy to talk to you about this after. You can check with your chavruta if you think you missed something, meaning he really did have um, his finger on the pulse of what was going on. And he definitely sort of hold us up to make sure that we really did understand. And if we didn't, he would say it as many times, but he knew when enough people had gotten it. And yeah, I don't know how he knew, but he did. It was also an intermediate and an advanced class at Stern. At least at Stern, there were two, he taught two different classes. Um, and I think if you, you know, I assume if you couldn't handle the advanced one, you went to the intermediate or he never said this, but I definitely felt very strongly. Um, and it's something that like I've taken for myself also that like you have to teach to the highest because, because there's no one else who will. If it's too hard for you in the advanced and you'll go to the intermediate. And he never said those words. I'm just saying he was the top. He was the one teaching us. Like he was going to, whatever level he taught us to, that's the level we were going to be. It was just, that was it. It's like a tremendous responsibility, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and like, it's something that, that I, you know, I, again, he never said it, but I, I think he communicated it. Yeah. I think he did teach to the top, but he did patiently try to bring people up, but yeah. he didn't, he never lowered the level of the sheer. I want to ask about the fact that in listening to all of you, I have tremendous regrets that I had never heard of Ramosha Khan until a week and a half ago. His name, at least as far as I remember, I, it never passed through anyone's mouth as I was talking to them. And I think that's a shame. I think it's a shame that we weren't able to study with him as well because he sounds like just such a phenomenal teacher. And I guess I'm asking to speculate, but do you know how he was perceived by the larger REITs or YU community or the larger centrist Orthodox community in which he operated? You might not know, but I'm wondering almost why have I not heard his name? Why is it only now from the many, many women who are saying that he was the best teacher they ever had and he was so incredible? Why is it only now that I'm hearing about him? And I think that's probably true for other people I've spoken to as well who also say, yeah, I never heard of him before. He sounds so amazing. Does anybody have any idea? Sally? I'll just start off. 
Naish Moshe Anav Me'od Mikoha Adam Asher I think it begins with the fact that Rabbi Khan was the most humble person that you'll ever meet. He never wasted one second on thinking about his name and how he was, you know, and, and getting himself out there or anything like that. So that's number one, is that he he never promoted himself. He never tried to be the one giving the Torah Torah or this or that or writing something somewhere like, you know, if he had something to say, he wrote it. You know what I mean? But it wasn't like he was, there was no ego there. That's number one. Number two, I, I actually think that part of the reason that nobody knew about him is because his Derech Halimud didn't produce like some great chiddush and some great idea that then you were going to tell over. It was so process oriented that if you were in the process and you were like amazed by it and you were so, um, it, it fulfilled you and it really, it was Mikadim, you would help you progress. But it's not like, it's not like you went home then, you know, and said, oh, like, you know, there's this great Kiddush, or there's this great new Pshat, and, you know, so so I think it's maybe a combination of that. I actually, I don't know how people perceived him. I, I don't personally know. Maybe somebody else here does. That's what I ascribe his, you know, the fact that nobody, nobody knew him too, but maybe there's more. I'm going to say something very carefully and hesitatingly, which is that he was not placed in a part of an institution that spent a lot of time promoting that part of the institution. There were no huge Yimei Iyun that he was headlining. There weren't big events, meaning we loved, let's say, GPAT's graduation was the best time because you heard Rabbi Khan speak, you know, about what we were doing and we felt, you know, really lucky to be part of it. But he and we existed in a very small, somewhat closed off from the larger centrist Orthodox world in that a lot of the publicity and the conversations around sort of things we discussed earlier, women's graduating from programs and women's roles, I mean, GPATS was somewhat closed off from that, at least in the years that I was there and the Stern, you know, Judaic Studies Department sort of like kept its head down and did its thing. I think in many ways we benefited from that, but there were certainly events that didn't happen, publications that weren't created that Rabbi Khan would have been the head of. I think we benefited from the fact that it didn't happen, but I think those were part of the reasons why people, even who lived in Teaneck near where he lived, you know, they knew him as a guy who davened at Renat and, and never really realized how many people he influenced. I think in Teaneck he was known. I think that he was known. I think that he, I don't know, even having grown up in Teaneck, I had never, I hadn't heard people, but maybe I was just too young at the time. Well, this was part of my first comment to you, Scott, um, and perhaps it's not fair, but I think that to have encountered Rabbi Khan in any of his incarnations, like you weren't in any of those populations, no offense, right? Meaning like in terms of his presence at YU, in, in terms of his presence at Stern and also in Teaneck, like these are not your milieu. Um, I think that True, I True, but I've also heard from other people who are in that milieu that they also didn't know about him. But admittedly, I am outside those. You're absolutely right. I've heard from people who knew him back in the day, right? Back in the day as a student in the Ravshir, right? That he was quiet, but always holding, right? That kind of 
role as a student and as a community member, he taught in Teaneck as well. It's not that he, meaning we haven't mentioned any of that kind of community education that he was involved with, which was often women, but not only. And at the Levaya, which I watched, of course, on Zoom, um, and thank you, Sally, for your Hespade, there were other Hespadim from people who knew him in different capacities, um, which I found to be obviously very moving, but also enlightening in terms of the influence that he had in these other spheres. So I, I will add also, as Sally said, as Rachel has said, there is nothing showy. So for example, in the Drisha course catalog, you're going to teach a course and you have to say like, what sin wreaked the most havoc? And that's going to be the title of your course. And now everybody's going to come flock to your course to find out what sin wreaked the most havoc. And Rabbi Khan's course said, the laws of Muksa. <laughs> or the equivalent and, and there's no even translation for Muksa, right? So the, the laws of carrying things that are prohibited on Shabbat. There was nothing glitzy. And still, I mean, his courses were very well populated, but it's not, it's what everybody's saying. It's it wasn't the same kind of brouhaha. Let's announce here's the man to come hear from. Mm-hmm. What everyone said is true. He was very uh, modest. And I think it's also, you haven't heard of him. First of all, you obviously never uh, spoke to me because I've been talking about him for a long time. Um, <laughs> but I think it says a little bit, something also the fact about where he taught that he was teaching uh, women. For some people may perceive that as less prestigious and had he maybe been in a men's institution. He was completely apolitical without an agenda other than just doing what was right and good. And there were some, you know, he, he did join a Beit Din, Rabbi Simcha Krause's, a Beit Din, to try to help Aguno. Knowing him, it was to help Aguno. It's in a terrible situation. And there was, you know, terrible backlash and a controversy surrounding it that knowing him, he would not have uh, fathomed. And, um, you know, these things are, are things that people can read about. Uh, or he wrote a very important article about the permissibility for a couple to use birth control. I was in Stern when he wrote it. He gave a sheer on it, just knowing, you know, in his way, not uh, realizing the backlash it would get. And when he saw how many of uh, the women just uh, didn't know that was a, a possibility and they were upset by it, but confused. He saw there was a need to write this. And he was so surprised. I remember when a lot of uh, places wouldn't uh, publish it. I mean, not because it was, it wasn't good at Torah and it was excellent at Torah. Um, but you know, they weren't willing to publish something which, you know, could cause this kind of a stir, but. For him, he was so uh, tamim, he didn't, he couldn't have fathom that, you know, these kind of things would cause any kind of a backlash. So he did uh, stand up for things just to do what was right. Okay. I want to move on to something else. A friend of mine wrote me a question, and you've actually partially answered it already, but I'll, I'll read the question anyway. He wrote that sometimes I see posts from certain sems, seminaries that say things like, the learning is stark and the like. Not for the first time, I'm torn between needing to make women's learning be a carbon copy of men's learning versus having an approach that becomes its own thing organically. 
I believe you've already answered, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, that his learning, his teaching was not different because he taught in Stern and Drisha than had he been teaching in Reitz. But I'd like to take it a bit further, assuming that is true. Leaving aside perhaps even Rav Khan's example, what do you all think about the possibility, and using him sort of as a, a starting point for this, what do you think about the possibility of a derech halimud for women, which is different than that found in men's vote, not in any way inferior, simply different because of the differences between men and women. Is that something that's desirable, or is that something which we should absolutely avoid, or something in between? That's all there is, except for, I mean, that's most women's education, not the same as men, so, I mean. Well, regardless of what exists right now, should we encourage the development of some sort of derech halimud that is perhaps unique to women, or based on the way that women learn, as opposed to a universal derech that everyone uses. Is that something desirable or not? I don't see the world this way. Like, I I don't. Yeah, I, I guess I think there's there's Torah and we need to learn it. And there are different derech that different people feel more more or less connected to. I don't see it dividing along gender lines, you know. I, I don't think our minds are so different. And, and you know, I, I recognize there are a lot of differences between men and women, but I, you know, speaking generally, not in every case, obviously, but but I just not like, I just, yeah, I guess I've also spent so much time in my life, like, you know, trying to defend, you know, when I was younger, people don't really talk to me about, don't challenge me so much anymore, because whatever, maybe they realize there's no point. <laughs> I don't know, but, you know, like, don't you think women's minds are really better suited for this or that? And I'm like, I don't know, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, and I also went to a co-ed high school, like, I don't know, we were like, we, some of us were better at this, some of us were better at that, but it didn't divide along gender lines. Like, why does it need to? So I don't, you know, I don't think of a derech halimud being specifically for women. I think that like, you know, there, are, I think there are a lot of like, you know, great things about a women's class. Like, I'm not trying to say that, you know, I think that there's a very nice and wonderful vibe and a wonderful experience together and, and all of that. I'm not, I'm not I just, um, I don't. I don't, I don't really relate to that. So. Here, here. <laughs> okay. Yes, Rachel. Well, I, I say this hesitatingly, given that my boss is on this Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> I should have Why? let you speak first. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I wanted to hear what you had to say and then discover that. I do want to say that I agree with Rebenit Sally that in terms of capability and potential, I don't see any reason to distinguish between, you know, men and women's learning. Um, I do think that at the stage that we're at, I'm discovering that women do ask different questions sometimes when learning than men do. And I can tell occasionally I'll listen to a sheer given um, in a male institution. And I can tell that there are questions that my students would ask that those male students are not thinking of. Right now, in the year that we're speaking, I, I don't see a specific Dara Halimud that is a, a women's Dara Halimud developing. I'm not sure if such a thing is going to develop, but I actually don't want to rule it out um, in terms of, again, in the world of halacha, we're seeing it more, I think, where women are becoming much more involved in answering halachic questions, writing halachic texts. I do think that we can, I, I personally see a difference in halachic answers to questions written by women, specifically to women, in terms of certain sensitivities, certain types of language um, that people are using. Um, so I think in halacha, it is happening. In Gumara, there aren't enough of us doing it still. It hasn't been going long enough, I think, to make a claim as to a female Dara Halimud. I, I don't know that such a thing will exist, but it, it might. I don't want to rule it out. It, it might be cool to see what develops. 
I find that idea in principle inspiring because I think that it's a manifestation of lahadil Torah ulahadira to make Torah great and glorious. If we can find additional drachim, new ways and new attitudes towards Torah within Torah that have not yet been uncovered, I think that is a manifestation of growth in Torah learning worldwide. It could well be that Rabbanit Sally is correct that the differences between the genders is simply not stark enough to make such a thing realistic or possible or even desirable, but at least the concept of an additional derech I find compelling. Yes, Anne? There's all kinds of educational research on how to teach math, right, to girls, to boys, to everybody. And there was a time when I thought my dissertation that has not yet happened was going to be on how to teach Gemara to girls and boys. And in fact, are there differences? Should there be differences? That kind of thing. But even if the conclusion at the end of the day is whether with math or with Talmud, that there are differences and that should gear how you make your lesson plans, I think that's different than a Der Chalimud. I think there's a difference of like what kind of story or joke or crafting of a lesson do you do to make sure that your material is the most accessible to the people in the room as opposed to how are you learning the material itself? Okay. I'd like to ask another question using Rav Khan as an example, as a starting point, but not about him per se. After this question, I'll ask a final question about Rav Khan's life and legacy. In terms of women's learning in the world today, obviously tremendous strides have been made, but what still needs to happen? What more needs to be done? Where would you like to see Limud HaTorah for Women go from this point forward? A week before Rabbi Khan passed away, I uh, went to the U.S. to see him, and we were uh, talking about this, or one aspect of this, and how, at least in Stern College, it's still, it's not a lot of uh, women who take the advanced to Kimara Shear. Now, there are a lot of uh, factors, you know, to be fair, it's not like in the men's college where there's a block of time that's only uh, designated for Gemara. And if you're like a bio major or, or a pre-med, often for some reason, all like the classes you have to take are during advanced to Gemara. So it's not just people aren't opting to uh, take it. But we were just talking, why is it still something that not so many uh, women want to study? or want to take this opportunity to have. And so, you know, we were talking how we just wish more women would take this opportunity and learn more people doing it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think like that there should be, I think uh, maybe we need to make the case better, you know, uh, that it's, uh, that it's really important. Maybe we're not, we're not making the case well enough. I don't know, like to, yeah. I don't know if it's just us not making the case. And the things we were uh, talking about was, it's still the backlash that girls will get it. So it's not the people making the case, but it's more just what does the larger community say about it? And it's not a value. Okay. Um, well, that's part of what, I, what I've been so like gratified to see in all the discussions about Rabbi Khan is that is all the discussion about how he was so just like an Ovid Hashem and just wanted us to be of Dot Hashem. And it was not about, you know, trying to break down walls or break down the tradition. It was totally to support the tradition and like getting that message out, like you're saying that, that that's, that's what we're doing. You know, and I talk to my students about this all the time. It's actually a lot of pressure. You know, it's a lot of pressure. I say to them, like, you're the standard bearers, you know, and like, you know, not just, not just where I teach, like everywhere, like any woman who teaches Gemara is under a microscope, you know, and like, okay, that's how it is. But like, okay, we have to live up to what we, what we want to be. So 
that we can, you know, we can be those exa that example of, of people who are who are doing the right thing, even though we're learning Gemara. I would say because, you know what I mean? But like, right. I think there was this assumption that like once women were allowed to do this, suddenly like all women would want to do this. And that obviously turned out not to be the case and raises a very interesting educational question for, you know, all women, women who are educators to sort of ask the question, is this something that we are pushing? Are we okay saying, you know, learning Gemara on an advanced level maybe isn't for everyone? I, I know that's kind of a questionable thing to say right now. Um, I, I personally want everyone to try it to see, you know, if it works for them. But I think there's something very interesting, which is that if you're a man, right, from men learn Gemara, and nobody's going to raise an eyebrow at that being part of, you know, your Avodah Hashem, right? When a, a woman learns Gemara, she has to prove that she's from, despite the fact that she's learning Gemara, still, for some reason. I know there are a lot of people who assume, oh, she must have some sort of nefarious agenda, as opposed to she just wants to get closer to God. Yeah, and more than that, that like, you take it for granted that this is part of her Avodah Hashem, right? Part of my Avodah Hashem is Talmud Torah. I don't know why this is surprising anymore, right? That it's not something that I do separately from all of the other things that are part of my religious life. This is a, a huge part of my religious life, but... That is not the language that we hear people using, meaning I want to hear people talking about Talmud Torah as just something that is core to being a from human being, man, woman, anything. Um, and I think that for some reason we kind of bumped into something and we we forgot how to talk about it or we forgot that we do need to talk about it um, like that. I'll say one other really quick thing, which is that one of the amazing things that's happened in the past couple of years is that plenty of non Orthodox identifying Jews have also gotten really into learning Torah in all sorts of different ways, which I think is like a really good thing in the world. And I think it's a blessing that there's more Torah in the world. It has raised kind of complications in this area in that it is now much more normal to find a woman learning Talmud, whether she's Orthodox or not Orthodox, you can't necessarily tell. Um, and it, it does raise questions for women in terms of making sure we create just groups of from women who feel like Torah is their thing. Like we need more of them. So there's an elephant in the room for me, which is that as much as my knee-jerk reaction was, as Shauna and Sally said, you know, just more, more people should be doing this. I think that there is a worldwide veering away from Eun, from in-depth study of anything. And I'm sure that's not true in the higher level academy of every single area. There's classic students, of course, and so on. But I feel like in our society of instant gratification and rapid fire communications. And, you know, if it doesn't work, move on, throw it out, keep going. I think it becomes really hard to recruit people to sit and break your head, read the same text four times, eight times, 12 times before you move on, right? So, and I feel like the people who want to do that should be given every opportunity convincing people that they want to do that, I think only comes, you know, if we could rope them in for something else and say, okay, now that you're here, let's give you some some of the eon along the way. And, and isn't it wonderful? And won't you keep going with it? I think we're in a hard time for this kind of study. And I, I kind of hope that all the yap and, and beautiful tributes that I've seen about Rabbi Khan will entice some people to kind of try to learn from his students and so on, you know, along the way. So I just want to add one more thing about 
something that I also was speaking to some of my students about, as well as Rabbi Khan, was that there are some women who do want the depth and do want to learn. And sometimes the reason they don't, at least in a stern, is the fear that boys won't want to go uh, out with them. And that is a real concern that's sung. I didn't want to say it, but it's real. And so maybe, not maybe, we shouldn't just be educating the girls they should be wanting to learn, but the boys, <laughs> that it's a very worthwhile for them as well to have Talmidat Chacham and Chachama. I just want to say a, a quick story about that. Just a counterpoint, even though I completely agree with what you're saying. At one time, I called up this guy and I wanted to set him up with this young woman. And I thought I had this great idea. I was so excited. And I called him up and I said, okay, so, you know, here's what she's like. Would you go out with her? And he was like, well, you know, what's her Ashkafa? And I told him what I thought her Ashkafa was. I didn't really know her or him that well, but whatever. I had this great idea. And then he said to me, does she learn Gemara? And I said, um, what do you I'm actually not with? sure. Right. I, hey, that's exactly what I said. I said, I'm not sure. And I'm going to find out and I'll tell you whatever the truth is. But could you tell me what the right answer is from your perspective? And he said, well, if she learns Kamara, that would be ideal. But if she just believes it's important, even if she doesn't learn it herself, that will be okay. And I like, this was like, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15. I pulled the phone away from my ear and I'm like looking at the phone. I walked into work after that and I was like, Everybody, Mashiach is coming. Let me explain <laughs> the conversation I just had. You know, so I guess sometimes <laughs> that's the right answer. But I, I don't disagree with you. I just thought it was a great story. <laughs> that is a great story. Can I share one tiny? It's it's much lighter. Please. But, but I wonder if this fact that was true is is a reaction to what Shana said, which is a hundred percent true. Which is that when I was in Rabbi Khan's shear, and I think long before and after us. So there was a tradition, you know, the night before a final or a midterm, everybody would stay in the Beit Midrash studying until it closed. And there was a concept invented called sheer boyfriend, which was whoever had been dating a guy the longest in the sheer, that boyfriend was responsible to deliver snacks um, the night before <laughs> the final or the midterm. Um, and it, it continued through many generations of, of sheer boyfriends, uh, many who became sheer husbands. Um, and I, I wonder if part of the reason that we instituted that was as sort of a, don't worry, you'll be able to find a guy who is like happy, not only to date a girl in Rabbi Khan's sheer, but also to deliver snacks to her and her friends the night before the final. <laughs> and I think we really did use it as this feeling of like, don't worry, like it, it'll work out. It, it's fine. Even if you haven't found the guy yet, like we'll, we'll be here for you. And it, it really, we were, we, we, his sheer created this camaraderie of women who supported each other through dating the guys and all of the things that he really made my friendships, my, my closest friendships happened because Rabbi Khan insisted that we spend hours in the baby drosh together. Um, so whether it was about the guys or not, it, it did something there too. We could keep talking about all these topics for a long, long time, but I want to close now with actually following up on what Anne said before. She said that she hopes that listeners will take from Rabbi Khan's example the importance of women learning B'iyun. Deep and intense Torah learning may too often be ignored. I don't mean that we should stop doing Dafyomi, and you have a podcast dedicated to Dafyomi, a wonderful podcast dedicated to Dafyomi. Dafyomi is great, but we can't have only the B'kiyut, the covering ground learning at the expense of in-depth learning. So I'd like to move on from that example and ask all of you on the panel, what do you hope that listeners will take home that they can learn from Rav Khan's example? I would like for more people to focus on the Torah 
and less on the politics. Can you elaborate a bit? I mean, I, I, I do mean, know what you mean, but I, I want you very, to elaborate, though. We live in a very politically fraught era in many different arenas, right? Both in the religious world and in the Israeli world. And I, I don't even know. American politics are also, you know, very hyperactive these days. And I feel like let's go back to keeping our heads down and just learning. And I and not to to bury your head in the ground, but to like, what's important? What do we really think is important? And I feel like if we can dedicate our time, and I don't know when I'm next going to be able to dedicate my time to a machloket, to delving into a malchamas, I, I don't see it happening today or tomorrow. But But all of us can choose different areas of study where we can focus our energies and kind of refresh what we really think is important instead of this, these clouds of politics that I think are very distracting. I would love certainly to see, you know, communities where a weekly Eun Shear pops up, you know, people who felt like Eun was something you can only do when you do it every single day. I, I would love to see that happen. I'm skeptical of how realistic it is because it is so hard to do Gamara B'Eun on a non-daily basis. Um, and so I think better than that, or, or in addition to that, would just be for people to believe in being in the middle of learning something. I mean, Rabbi Khan was always in the middle of learning something, and we were always in the middle of learning something, whatever it was. And I think that the idea that if you were a student of Rabbi Khan, there was always like Torah going on in your head, there was always a sugya you were in the middle of, that is a gift that most adults don't have, even adults who learn occasionally or regularly. Um, and if we could find ways to tap into tap into that, to to be in the middle of learning something good on a regular basis, I, I think that would be such a gift. Fantastic. One thing is, is consider going into teaching. We need more teachers. We need more teachers who believe in, in, in their students and who want to raise them up and have those high standards coupled with the kindness like that's um i'd love to see more more young people going into teaching teaching women especially but but teaching torah and i guess like the one really really big thing i take away from rabbi khan is his midot like i just think he was he was just such a like a stellar person who just was so humble and so caring and so kind and so dedicated like over the past week and a half i just see like myself trying to be more like him, you know, and he was always my role model, you know, but like be it in the precision in which like I've definitely translated all the words better this week and a half than I have, you know, maybe in the months before. But uh but also just like focusing on what's important, focusing on what really matters, tune out the noise, whether it be politics noise or like sometimes just silliness noise, just like just 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 do what do what you think is right and and focus on it like that's that's one of the things i'm taking away okay thank you shana really one of the things that um i mean in uh study uh precision uh patience you know it's not a a race better to do something well look it up take the time and in my life i have since i have known him I really just look to his lack of ego in every area of his life. In his uh, teaching, it wasn't about to showing off his uh, knowledge. It was about getting us to understand. As a person, someone at the Leviah said, 
A lot of people run from a kavod, but they look to see if it's a chasing him. He didn't even know there was kavod to chase. That was so a true. And one of the things that really awed me about him, and knowing this because I'm friends with his daughter, was his lack of his lack of ego as a parent. And as a parent, that's really a hard thing to do. That you just totally want your kids to do what's right for them, be happy, and take your own ego out of it. That's something which I think about him all the time as a parent and have to struggle with. So to me, that's a real Myla of a human being <laughs> to be able to do that. I want to thank you all. This has been so eye-opening for me, especially after a week and a half of hearing about him, but not really getting a chance to go into who he really was. You've all really helped me open my eyes and had a better appreciation for Rev. Moshe Kanzatzal, and I'm very, very appreciative. Hopefully, we should all take his example, the various examples that you mentioned right now, as well as all that we talked about today, because we do need, as you said, Sally, better teachers and more teachers and people who care about their students as much as they care about getting their big Kiddush across, and all of that should serve as an example for all of us. So I thank you all. Rabbanit Ann Gordon, Rabbanit Sally Mayer, Dr. Shana Strauss-Schick, Rabbanit Rachel Weber-Lesha. Thank you all for joining me again. I appreciate it. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.